I hope that all of you are staying safe, as safe as possible during this pandemic and adhering to social distancing. I just want to say that um, as you're listening to my podcast, I'm going to ask you for three simple actions. Uh, if you like what you hear, please rate and re- review me on on iTunes, on Spotify, and Google Play, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, number two, engage me directly for feedback. You could uh, follow me on Twitter. If you aren't a personal friend, engage me there. Otherwise, feel free to message me on other social media platforms, text me, whatever. And then three, um, tell three friends and family members about the pod if you do like it. Um, so my audience is only what it is because of the tremendous support and feedback I've gotten. And I've been fortunate enough to grow over 50% of my audience over the last quarter. So I'm going to hope to continue to push it and uh, try to give you guys a great product every time that you listen. Hello and welcome to the Chris Ham Podcast, episode 43, wrapping up week five of quarantine. And it's a holy week this week. All the fucking days blend together. <laughs> it's Groundhog Day every day. Um, except, uh, you know, there's no person to punch in the face like Bill Murray did. Um, <laughs> the same greeting. That movie is a classic movie. But um, on the cusp of Easter, in the middle of Passover, um, today, as I start recording this, it's a Saturday and a lot of people were out and about today. Um, it wasn't even that nice of a day. I mean, it was probably uh, in my area, uh, in, in New York around, um, you know, low, maybe low 50s, windy, sunny. But um, I feel like there were there were nicer days in the past and there were less people out. And um, the weather has is starting to trend nicer. The trees are blooming. But I think people are actually starting to realize that Corona, if you walk outside, it's not going to kill you. It's not going to infect you. It's not a deadly compound in the air. They can leave their house to avoid getting stir crazy. And I've seen mostly people aren't being idiots. Uh, in, in, in our area, they're wearing masks and gloves, mostly. Um, but they're definitely out and about more. And the roads, um, even in the suburbs, at times, in certain streets, are feeling overcrowded with foot and bike traffic. So just um, something interesting to, to watch as we move into the summer months. But um, for me, I'm also wrapping up paternity leave and PTO. Uh, this is my last week of it, uh, or, or was my last week of it, and uh, I'm going to try to blend this socially distanced life as a new dad to uh, indefinitely a remote employee at work. Um, you know, it just uh, should be an interesting experience uh, next week as uh, I got to go through about a thousand or more emails. But um, people have been so incredibly generous um, with baby gifts. Um, Overall, a special shout out to the friends and family who have sent so many great things to us, including food and meals and baked goods while we're holed up as a new family of four uh, during a pandemic. Now, Amazon packages from others and our own shipments have been coming daily. And a few nights ago, there was a giant box that came from Target. And for a second, we thought this was from my parents sending diapers because it had our older daughter's full name on it. Um... So I I lugged this giant box into our home up a flight of stairs and open it, disinfect it, of course, and open it. And it is uh, in bubble wrap. Um, What is it? It's 48 bags of shelled peanuts and these budget vanilla protein shakes. Now, to cut any suspense, this this was a mistake, all right? Feels like it was meant for some single meathead. You can't make this stuff up. Uh, Turns out it was not my parents. Uh, It was a mistake, 
uh, by from from Target, I guess. But um, a little bit of comic relief. If anybody's interested in peanuts um, or vanilla shakes, I, my, my dad actually said he would he would take them. But uh, uh, it's just funny. I, mean, I guess there could have been worse things to get in a box by mistake. But um, on today's episode, I'll give you a high level update on COVID nineteen. Uh, I'm going to speculate how this thing could end or the few ways it could end. Um, I'll include a history lesson about the Spanish flu from 100 years ago, uh, last century, um, as well as a zany conspiracy theory out there about COVID. I'm also going to walk you through concisely what a typical week has looked like for me under quarantine and how, or I guess you know, by, by looking at a typical day that really um, is a glimpse into what a week look like, looks like because every day is the same. Um, and just how to keep a, keep a happy home uh, throughout the process. I'm going to end with uh, takes of all temperatures, totes. So buckle up, episode 43. Here we go. So I want to start with this. In life, usually two extremes of anything are not the best approach for accomplishing something. Or just the best approach in general. Let me give you an example. If you have a home, you probably shouldn't leave your door unlocked when you go to sleep or go on a long vacation. Now, on the other extreme, in most cases, you don't need security cameras at every entry point, laser detection around the property, and armed guards at every uh, at the end of the driveway either. Um, another example, if you want to be fit, you probably don't need to work out every day for three hours. At the same time, you need more than a spin class every two weeks to be fed. So I get the sense with, with COVID-19, people operate in these same extremes and also mentally view the transition out of this quarantine in two polar opposite ends of the spectrum. And in reality, the truth, so to speak, as it often is, lies somewhere in the middle. Now, there's some folks whose idea of social distancing is just living life mostly at home, but going out multiple times a day seeing friends and family, wearing no gloves, no mask, and waiting this thing out until the usual conveniences of life are back in the picture and the world as they knew it open up. Those same people walk around with no gloves, no mask, pumping gas, and looking at those of us who take appropriate precautions with this disdain and arrogance. Now, Andy Slavitt, who is the former acting administrator for Medicare and Medicaid under President Obama, put it best. He said, he said on a podcast recently, wearing a mask signals to others that you're giving this disease the respect it deserves because as many as one in four of us are asymptomatic. Don't be an asshole. Now, on the other hand, there are folks who hoard groceries, toilet paper, and do not leave their homes even for a walk around the block, refuse to get delivery of food, even though the CDC and experts say, and experts say that this disease is spread through droplets and not through food. It doesn't live on food services. It lives on, on uh, stainless steel, um, even cardboard for like a few hours, but they're very small droplets. That's not how you're going to contract this thing. It's a respiratory disease. Now, these sort of folks who are a little less extreme might go out, but right around you know, right around in their fucking closed car with masks and gloves on, like like this disease travels through the air like the Joker's gas in the original Batman movie. All right, don't be a kookadoo either. The appropriate way to be is probably somewhere in the middle of the two endpoints that I described. Now let's look at the transition out of this thing. As far as that goes, oftentimes I contemplate how this thing is going to end. 
the reality of it is we don't know exactly how or when it's going to happen. But we can point to history and even other parts of the world as indicators. We are not going to go back to work business as usual on May 4th riding the fucking subway, riding the commuter rails, moseying on into our office and just washing our hands a few more times a day and putting sanitizer on. Now, conversely, we are not going to be living the life we have been living for the last month, month and a half, holed up in our homes until 2021. You hear people say the hyperbolic quote, oh, life will never be normal again. Calm down. Take a deep breath, chief. You know, my family and I are completely all aboard the social distancing train. But here's my theory. There's probably a bit more we can be doing as far as safe social interaction, like gathering with another family in a yard at a distance. You even see it sometimes like, you know, I saw it today. I saw it the last few days. People are going for walks together that aren't in the same household, but they're standing six feet, 10 feet or more apart, having a conversation from, uh, from you know, halfway across the street. But the thing is with, with, with that, when you send a large-scale message of action, like shelter in place, lockdown, quarantine, whatever you want to call it, however you're going to operate in your section of the country or the world, you have to operate as a leader, as if the body of people are as smart as the dumbest person. It's kind of like the, the, the message on a plane to turn off all electronic devices upon the plane leaving the gate. I mean, is that necessary? Probably not. Do you think everybody follows that? No way. We would have to talk to an avia- aviation expert, but I imagine that if every person on a commercial flight used their cell phones the whole time, it might increase the chance of a mechanical failure by a fraction of a percent. But this is the message that, that, that has to go out. I mean, when you, when, you, when you put things in place like social distancing, flattening the curve, you know, Jen, my wife, alluded to this last episode we recorded together. You model out some people following it like really strictly, others following it loosely. But really the way to, or looser, not at all, but the way to be is probably somewhere in the middle. So here is my very general prediction on what I think could happen with COVID based on what I've read, what I've listened to, and what I've seen. Now, I'm fusing together opinions by health experts, epidemiologists, and the like. And uh, I think normalcy in our society is going to happen in phases, if you will. Not formal phases, but I think sometime, you know, we could just look at these things in in just general um, logical waves. Now, I think sometime in late May, about a month and a half from now, or June, we see the reopening of um, some schools, at least on a local level, with um, distancing parameters to capstone capstone the school year. Maybe... um, Classes coming in, meeting for a few times in shifts. Um, I think also we're going to see retail stores with open with mask requirements. And then some offices and workplaces where the work is not essential work, but it's better conducted and better for the economy to be done in person. So, so, that, so let's call that phase one, if you will. I think that's going to happen, as I said, at some point, a month and a half, two months from now. Then let's call it uh, the next phase, phase two. And I think what happens there um, is restaurants open to, to dine in with strict parameters around distance. Um, I think this is going to be sometime around early Q3. So we're going to call this around July. Um, then I think by late Q3, more sensitive venues such as stadiums and concert halls, etc., are going to open up again with very strict parameters. Um, that's going to be, I think, at some point in the early fall, like maybe late summer, early fall, mid to late September. 
And I think by the by the time phase three comes around, sports leagues are going to commence without fans, and eventually fans get phased in. Now, I know the NBA season and NHL seasons were abruptly cut short. We might see some kind of really just off the wall tournament happening with them at some point. Um, you know, June, July, something like that, um, with no fans watching. And I think you know, Major League Baseball. If we're talking about sports, you know, I think I think we're looking at maybe half a season. Um, which probably is a good thing because the season is too friggin' long anyway. But I think it's hyperbolic to think that we're not going back to, to normal at some point in general. You know, I understand the vaccine is still a year or year plus away, which I think is fucking ridiculous. I'll get to that. And I understand that we might still have several more months of this, and we have to be, be very vigilant about um, this thing coming back when the weather gets cold. But at some point, things go back to normal the same way they did with the Spanish flu. They're going to go back to normal. I mean, there was a, a decade called the Roaring Twenties that, that happened after the Spanish flu happened. Um, people were going out. People were drinking and socializing. It was the end of prohibition. Um, and, you know, some things, though, I think are going to be changed in this process forever. Number one, working from an office as the standard. The old guard has been reluctant in this age of technology to promote and in some cases even tolerate working from home. And I get it to a degree. There's an element of interaction that can't be simulated virtually in a professional setting. And that's one of the reasons we are all going stir crazy because socializing via FaceTime isn't quite the same as grabbing a drink with friends or going on a double date. But... Largely, working from home infuses employees with mental health benefits, mitigates commuting time, and provides comparable efficiency, especially once kids are back in school settings and out of the house. I think a byproduct of this period of time is going to be clarity that office FaceTime is overrated. Another thing I think that's changed forever, handshakes. Number two, some things handshakes are going to be a custom of the past, but I think this is a bit much. Handshakes are a way to build a connection or rapport on a smaller scale relative to a, to a hug or a kiss. Now, hugging and kissing aren't going away. Why would handshakes go away when this pandemic fades? However, they aren't going to be given out like hotcakes in a casual or insignificant meeting. So I think handshake culture will change, but handshakes aren't going away altogether. And number three... Hand-washing culture. I've always been pretty neurotic about washing my hands before meals, out to eat, or otherwise. But I think we're going to be way, way more diligent about this. So those are the three things I think that'll, that are changed forever post-COVID-19. Working from home as a, working from the office as a standard, number one. The way that we give and receive handshakes, number two. And number three, hand-washing culture. So... Quickly, some high-level COVID updates. As of the end of the day, 4-11, transitioning into 4-12, 1.7 million are infected worldwide, and over 500,000 of those cases are in the U.S. Um, There's almost 110,000 dead worldwide and over 20,000 in the U.S. Men are 75% more likely to get to, to both get and die from COVID. And that, this comes from, from two separate studies in Italy and China. The U.S. studies haven't been um, finished yet. Obviously, Italy and China 
are further along in the COVID process than we are um, as it relates to the, the pathology of the general population. Now, the major thing with this whole thing, regardless of how and when we, we think this thing is going to end um, in the world, is a vaccine really going to take 12 to 18 months? I mean, this seems like a monumental crisis. And forgive my rudimentary medical perspective and likely unfair judgment of our scientists and uh, epidemiologists and doctors, but I think this feels like a bit too long. You know, I know there are three phases to this thing. I know there's finding a cure, which apparently they've done, uh, testing it, which you don't want to um, kill people or seriously, you know, paralyze people with some kind of a um, a broken cure. And then the third phase is distributing it and, and, and mass producing it. And each of those legs needs to be deliberate. But if, if this were a worse and more deadly disease, you mean to tell me that this is what you, humanity would hinge on? 12 to 18 months for a vaccine? A quick history lesson on the Spanish flu last century next. So back just over 102 years ago, early January of 1918, the Spanish flu, also known as La Pesadilla, which is Spanish for the nightmare, infected 500 million people or a quarter of the Earth's population at the time. Now, it spanned for nearly three years, ending in December of 2020 and killed an estimate somewhere between 17 and 50 million people, up to 10% of those infected. And some people think on the high end, 100 million people were killed, so therefore 20%. Now to maintain morale, World War One censors minimized, World War One censors minimized early reports of the illness and mortality in Germany, the UK, France, and the US. Now newspapers were free to report the epidemic's effects in neutral Spain, such as the grave illness of King Alfonso, um, King Alfonso the the Thirteenth, and these stories created a false impression of Spain as especially hard hit, thus giving rise to the name Spanish flu. Now, most influenza outbreaks disproportionately kill um, the very old, um, with the highest survival rate. Um, the, sorry, the very young and the very old with a high survival rate for those in between. But the Spanish flu pandemic resulted in a higher than expected mortality rate for this middle population for young adults. The virus came at the heels of World War I, and many speculate the nature of war in addition to soldiers' weakened immune systems contributed to the deadly carnage. And this flu killed more than more people in 24 weeks, just over, just not even half a year then HIV and AIDS killed in 24 years. The pandemic mostly killed young adults. Um, in 1918 and 1919, 99% of pandemic influenza deaths in the U.S. occurred in people under 65. And nearly half of the deaths were in young adults 20 to 40 years old. Now, in 1920, the mortality rate among people under 65 had decreased sixfold to half the mortality rate of people over 65, but still 92% of the deaths occurred in people under 65. Now, according to historian John M. Barry, the most vulnerable of all, those most likely of those most likely of the most likely to die were pregnant women at the time. Now, he reported that in 13 
studies of hospitalized women in the pandemic, the death rate ranged from 23 to 71%. Of the pregnant women who survived childbirth, over one quarter, 26% lost the child. Now, another oddity was the outbreak was widespread in the summer and the autumn in the Northern Hemisphere. Influenza typically is worse in the winter. Now, big picture, this sounds way worse and opposite of what we have seen from COVID-19 so far. But the second wave of the 1918 pandemic was much more deadly than the first. The first wave had resembled typical flu epidemics. Those most at risk were sick and elderly, while younger, healthier people recovered easily. But by August, when the second wave began in France, Sierra Leone, and the United States, the virus had mutated to a much more deadly form. October 1918 was the month with the highest fatality rate of the whole pandemic. And the fact that most of those who recovered from the first wave of infections had become immune showed that it must have been the same strain of flu. Now the world, thanks to technology, is a much smaller place from a figurative perspective, and there is a flow of transparency based on technology in addition to medical advances. However, if history is any indicator, we have to be very careful to integrate back to normal and we have to do it slowly and carefully. Now, while I said this epidemic lasted three years, technically the bulk of it took place in one calendar year, 1918. And the weird thing was, this virus mysteriously fell off a cliff. After the lethal second wave struck in, in uh, October of 1918, new cases dropped precipitously, almost to nothing after the peak in the second wave. So for example, in Philadelphia, major city, Close to 4,600 people died in the week ending October 16th. But by November 11th, less than a month later, the influenza had almost disappeared from the city. So the conclusion, I trust the medical experts this century more than last to provide us with the right information, but let's not let the pressure of the economy force us into situations in which we are not comfortable. I think we are going to see life get quote unquote normal sooner rather than later. But I fear sometime this fall or early winter, we might be in the midst of a quarantine again, and it might be Mother Nature ultimately that ends, that ends the, the pandemic. Stay safe out there and be conservative when reintegrating back into society. A quick conspiracy theory next. So there's a conspiracy theory out there that is an end of days rumor. So everybody with the tin foil hats or the aluminum, the aluminum foil hats, listen up. Now, this, there's a rumor out there that purports that COVID is a man-made virus meant to distract the world because there is a giant asteroid, Armageddon style, sent to collide with Earth at the end of this month. And it was a way to get the world to spend more time with their families. Now, I can't help but, but, but laugh at this notion. I mean, there was a post on Twitter eventually taken down from a cryptic former CIA alias who didn't even verify his identity. He gave a first name, last initial. He's a former CIA alias and the world's coming to an end. Why the, why the hell is he uh, staying, uh, staying, radio, staying anonymous, I should say? Now, this, the site Snopes spent some time, and you can look it up, debunking this and showing a variety of reasons why this in all likelihood is pure bullshit. But if you told me back in December that an asteroid was going to hit the Earth... I don't know that we would get the martial law we would see in the movies, or I guess November when this uh, rumor is set to have originated. I actually think that humanity as a collective body bands together in crisis. 
Now, individuals can be selfish, evil, terrible, destructive. But look at examples at the worst of times in recent history. Natural disasters, tsunamis, earthquakes, tornadoes, 9-11, mass shootings, and now COVID, people tend to rally. People tend to rally around each other and in communities and band together in crisis. And maybe I'm being optimistic, but I believe this to be true. So that's a conspiracy theory. I don't buy it. Neither does Snopes. Take it for what it's worth. Take it with a grain of salt. What a typical day and week under quarantine has looked like for me and my family next. So it's been five weeks from the lead up to my younger daughter's birth through now. And uh, it's been, it's literally, I mentioned this in the last episode with, with, with Jen, my wife, her birth signified the delineation for us and for the way that society has seemed to operate between normal and post-pandemic quarantining that we've, that we've, that we've uh, all been living in for the last month and a half. Now, it's been hard being isolated and paring down life as we know it, even though this is a natural period to nest and figure shit out without others in the picture, including extended family and, and, and friends. But it's the little trips and small micro social interactions I think we all miss. Now, at this point, too, we probably would take Emmy out to at least a public meal as she approaches a month old. Um, please, please uh, let me know how it's all going for you out there as far as your own family situations, your own personal situations and this pandemic. Now, I'm just going to give you a typical day. So I'm going to start with, with midnight on any day. Pick a day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, doesn't matter. They all freaking blend together. Now, at this point, Emmy, our youngest, she wakes up sometime between 1 and 3 a.m. Uh, that is her sole bottle feed. Jen and I wake up together. I run downstairs to get the bottle ready. Um, sometimes it's formula. Sometimes it's um, it's uh, pumped breast, breast milk from the last few days. Um, while Jen soothes her with a, with a pacifier. Now, five to ten minutes later, I'm back in our room. Jen pumps and I take Emmy from the bassinet in our room to, to her room, change her diaper and feed her a bottle while catching up on um, Ozark on Netflix or listening to a podcast. Now, I'm a bit out of it when Emmy first wakes us up, but I actually enjoy this window. Um, it is slow at this point as she isn't chugging bottles yet. So I burp her every ounce and there's inevitably some spit up. It's a process. I finish up, uh, get the pumped milk from Jen, throw it in the fridge um, one of us will do that, then put Emmy back down. And all in, we're talking about an hour from first cry to putting back down. Now, fortunately, I'm a good spurt sleeper, so I fall back asleep usually within five to 10 minutes. Probably uh, also helps that I'm sleep deprived. Now, sometime between 5 and 7 a.m. at this phase, Emmy gets up again and Jen will change and feed her while I await Eloise waking up in our room, which happens earlier and earlier with increasing sunlight until a, a better shade comes in for her room. Now, sometime between 6.30 and 7.30, Eloise comes into our room and always inevitably wants to just wake up, go downstairs, watch TV, eat breakfast. It's as hard as ever to be able to muster up the energy to get up and go down by 7.30, but we do it. We have an, we have an Amazon clock that, that tells time for her in her room based on colors. When it goes from red or, or whatever color she decides to, to rest it on the, during the night, uh, to yellow at 7 a.m., she's supposed to stay in her room and play. 
She doesn't do that. She comes out of her room like a bat out of hell, runs down the hallway. We hear the pitter-patter. She, she opens our door and engages with us in some way or asks us for something in her room, opening up a, 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 her closet door or getting a toy out. So inevitably, we're, we're up by, by 7-ish. Um, but when it's green at 7.30, this means that we can go downstairs and begin the morning. Now, Emmy goes down for, for her morning rest after uh, Jen is, is nursing. Uh, that's a whole other discussion about how arduous that whole process seems for, um, for the spouses, um, for the women. And uh, you know, Jen and I do a combination of eating breakfast, personal fitness, preparing breakfast for ourselves, for the rest of us, phone calls and entertaining elders, which usually is a couple of TV shows, Dora the Explorer, some Disney Plus, Blue's Clues, some interactive playing. She had a, 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 a artist camp, an arts camp for a virtual camp for a week this past week, which is a huge friggin' hell for two hours in the morning. Now, usually in that window, too, we are doing, doing a load of laundry, walking the dog, washing dishes. Some days we do a drive during that time to get out of the house. Some days we don't. Now, around 11.30, Emmy feeds again. And by noon, we are preparing lunch for the rest of us. And uh, the one o'clock hour is spent trying to get Eloise to take a nap. 95% of the time, it doesn't freaking happen. She just plays in her room for 30 to 40 minutes, makes excuses to come downstairs and go to the bathroom, resist a nap, all while being absolutely exhausted. Now, 2 to 3 p.m. is usually a, an opportunity for Jen and I to, to sometimes watch a show together or just rest, just take a, a cat nap. And usually by 3.30 after Emmy feeds, we put her in the bassinet or the car seat along with Eloise. Then we go for a drive if the weather is bad or a drive and a walk if the weather is good. By 5 p.m., we start prepping dinner. And depending on any on, on uh, Emmy getting up to feed or not, some combination of us eat dinner together. By 6 p.m., Eloise takes a bath. By 6.30, she has, she's in her bedroom, but seldom does she go to sleep or when she's supposed to go to sleep. By 7, she prolongs that for 15 minutes, 30 minutes, sometimes an hour. Um, it used to be both Jen and I putting her down together, but now depending on what's going on with the baby, we will swap in and out, reading her books, telling her a story, or singing her a song. Now, sometime between 7.30 and 10.30, that's usually our golden window of time. We will walk the dog, finish up any dinner that we haven't eaten, and we'll be just our free time to watch shows together, have a glass of wine, talk, catch up with other friends or family, or just take a breath. Now, around 10 or 10.30, Emmy does a dream feed. We prepare for the middle of the night, bottle feeding station, breast pumping equipment clean, load or unload the dishwasher, um, and, you know, rinse, repeat, and round and round and round and round we go. And uh, between 11 a.m. and 7 a.m., the goal is to get at least six hours of collective sleeps. Most nights it happens. Um, Emmy's a great baby. Um, and as I said, after that, every day, pretty much rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. So... Just a glimpse into the quarantining life that uh, that we're experiencing so far. Next week, the work variable gets gets entered into the picture, and that's gonna kind of turn everything on its head a little bit. But we're gonna try to do our best. But uh, totes next. Toad number one. Have you ever been? I'm gonna paint a picture for you. Have you ever been at a traffic light, and there's no turning lane on your side for make a left? And there's no turning lane on the other opposite side, on the oncoming traffic side, to make a left turn. So there's no left turn arrow either. So basically, if somebody wants to make a left turn coming the opposite way, they have to wait for the you and the car, any cars behind you to, to go. And then they make the turn. 
So what happens is when, when, when uh, both of the lights turn green and the opposing car the other way, tell me if this has happened to you, turns and cuts you off to make the left turn rather than waiting five seconds, 10 seconds, 15 seconds, maybe 30 max for the cars on your side to pass. To me, it is one of the most chief, entitled, selfish, and douchebag driving moves somebody can do. There's no excuse for it, all right? Short of a, uh, a life or death emergency. Fucking ridiculous and infuriating when I see it happen. Yet another manifestation of the shitty underbelly of our population. Tote number two. Even the best looking people are kind of ugly and weird looking as babies. I never understand the obsession by people to see newborns. Parents, maybe grandparents can get excited about it because it's their offspring or their offspring's offspring. And really, I mean, like, I really just don't, I only understand parents getting excited about it at the end of the day. And I was reflecting on it, especially now, as circumstances don't allow in-person visits for our, our baby Emmy. I mean, kids are basically like aliens until month two or three. They only smile when they shit or pass gas. And they don't really offer much as far as engagement goes. Now, now we're smitten because we, especially with the second kid, contrasting her to our oldest, you know, looking at the resemblance that, 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 that she has to us. But let's just accept and stop pretending that newborns are cute. They're not cute. All right. It's all relative. It's such an overrated stage. Spit up, pee, poop, smells, weird skin coloring. You know, maybe every once in a while I reminisce when Eloise was so small, was this small, but I don't really think much good or exciting happens until they're two and a half or three months old. Toad number three. I never understand when I see people buy coffee and remove the lid. It's a hot drink and it gets cold quickly. You're exposing so much surface area to the, to the elements. You know, maybe I like to nurse a coffee more than most. I tend to like, you know, get a coffee, make it an experience for an hour and a half, two hours, sometimes two and a half hours. But I'm noticing how quickly coffee cools in the middle of quarantine life as we brew 90% of our own coffee these days. You know, taking off the lid of coffee to me is like buying an ice cold lemonade in the middle of the summer or a cold beer and throwing it in the microwave. It's stupid. Don't take the lid off coffee, off hot coffee. And also, like in this day and age too, especially now as we're, we're uh, in, a, in a very germ-conscious world, like imagine the amount of germs that are going to be able to be exposed to, to a coffee cup without a lid on it. Toad number four. Speaking of coffee, coffee is an interesting thing as far as the spectrum of, spell, of smells. Coffee smells fantastic when it's brewing. It's okay smelling as you drink it, and it's absolutely putrid on fabrics if you spill it. On your clothes, on the couch, on carpet, it's terrible. Coughing on fabric is akin to the body odor on airplane seats. How many other substances in the world have such a spectrum of quality from an olfactory perspective? Or any sense for that matter. Coffee runs the gamut. Toad number five. Contagion. Starring Gwyneth Paltrow and Matt Damon, Lawrence Fishburne, Kate Winslet, Elliot Gould. This is a movie that came out uh, the early part of uh, last decade. I think 2011 it was. It was, it was really – Contagion was really onto something as a movie. You know, there, as far as like a virus, like uh, I guess like 
apocalyptic movie. I mean, it, I, it, it was actually really, really good and onto something. I, I went back and watched this a few weeks ago um, when I was more panicky about this pandemic. And I saw it in 2011 when it first came out, shortly after. But it really resonated now because outside of a bit of Hollywood exaggeration, including a very large death rate, it's basically COVID-19 down to the bat rumor as a cause of it. If it's not going to freak you out to watch it, check it out. Good cast, good plot, and compelling. The one area in that movie I think that is unrealistic is how quickly society unravels. That speaks to my, my, my earlier point, but, but great, movie to, great movie to watch and uh, really gives a lot of insight about, about uh, just virus spreads and ep- epidemics. Thanks for listening to the Chris Ham Podcast. Please follow me on Twitter, at Chris N. Ham. Your support and feedback is incredibly valuable as I grow this podcast. So please tell me what you like, what you don't like, and feel free to suggest topic ideas. Take it easy, friends. Be well.